0: Today's scripture reading will be read from the New International Version. Um, today's scripture reading features three of the Old Testament background passages for our Revelation study. The first two are from Isaiah, and they feature God's self-declaration as the first and the last. The last is from Daniel's vision of the one like the Son of Man, who is Jesus. So the first scripture reading, Isaiah 44, 6-8. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. The second is from Isaiah 48, 12 to 13. Listen to me, Jacob, Israel, whom I have called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My own hand laid the foundations of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I summon them, they all stand up together. And then, Daniel 7, 9-10, to 13-14. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Julie. Well, we are into our new series in the book of Revelation. We launched last week, and if you missed that message, you owe it to yourself to go online and listen to it. That's not because I'm awesome. Trust me. It's because last week we tried to get started on the right path in Revelation, because a lot of times the confusion and the uh, craziness, uh, various other things that happen in the book of Revelation happen because we can get off on the wrong path. And so last week we tried to talk about what is Revelation? What what kind of book are we reading? And so I actually inserted a very fine print, little insert, in the back of your uh, scripture reading today, the scripture we're looking at in Revelation. And that is... Uh, Much too summarized to capture everything from last week, but that's for those of you who will just ignore what I just said about going and listening to the message. We looked at, very briefly, in the first eight verses, we find out that the book of Revelation is a unique combination of three genres. Apocalypse, prophecy, and letter. And we talked about all that, and we fleshed it all out. The big one I want to remind us of this morning is the meaning of the word apocalypse, because, we talked about it last week, apocalyptic brings to your mind what? I'm dead. Yeah, the, the zombies, the, some catastrophe, things blowing up, terrible things happening. But that's actually not what the word meant. Not back then, not when it was written. So when the, the book of Revelation starts with the words, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, it means, well, just how it's translated, the revelation of Jesus. And what we what we explored is how the best way to capture the word apocalypse is it's the pulling back of a curtain, which is why we have this curtain here. The pulling back of a curtain, particularly to reveal something or someone or some perspective that is present but was hidden from our eyes. We weren't able to see it. And so, what we find out is that the book of Revelation is designed to be an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It's designed to pull back the curtain to reveal that Jesus is present to us in our situation. That the greatest unseen reality in your situation, in my situation, in our world, is Jesus Christ. And this whole letter, this whole prophecy, this whole book is an apocalypse designed to do just that. And we want to keep our eyes on that as we go through Revelation. So, again, last time I'll say it, you owe it to yourself and go listen to it online or through iTunes, or if that's too difficult, we'll burn you a CD. I'd even sit down and preach it to you again if I really had to. But it would be really great if we, as we travel through this amazing Revelation this year, that we would actually get off together on the right path. Well, today, we're going to still get into some more introductions. We're doing verses 9 through 20 in chapter 1 of Revelation, and it's printed on uh, the little insert that I already mentioned in slightly larger font uh, for, for you. And and so that's where we begin today. We're going to get some more introductions. We're actually going to meet John, find out a little bit more about him. Most importantly, though, we're going to meet Jesus today. We're going to see the curtain pulled back on Jesus, and we're also going to be introduced again to these seven churches that the book, the whole book of Revelation is being written to. So here's my opening question for you. What are your greatest fears? Now, that's too personal a question for some of you. So here's what you can do. Tell me what your friend's greatest fears are. <laughs> and we'll never know you're talking about yourself. What are your greatest fears? What, what are some of the fears that you carry? And this is a really intimate question. So just you think about that. You don't need to say this out loud. What are your fears? No, I googled it. I googled, what are people, what are people afraid of? Well, there's a lot of things people are afraid of. Some of them I'm afraid of. So there you go. But I came up with this list I found online, of the 10 most fearable things. Shall we go through this list? Let's see if you can identify with any of these fears. Number one on the list was the fear. Of flying. I've had friends who've actually gone through classes to overcome a fear of flying. It's a very real fear, and maybe some of you have struggled with it. How about this one? The fear of public speaking. I know some of you. You get sweaty when I just ask you to read scripture. Fear of public speaking. How about this one? Fear of heights. Okay, I confess. I I confess this one is one of my... We went to the Calgary Tower with the boys. Have you ever been there? Bit of a glass floor going on, you know? I hugged the girder. And I did not want to let go. And of course, the kids, the boys, who were quite a bit younger then, they're like jumping all over, and they're laughing, and they think it's awesome that mom and dad are like ready to hurl. Because all I could see, looking out the window, this is how my imagination works, all I could imagine was the whole Calgary Tower. I could see it. I I could imagine myself traveling down as we went toward, you know, whatever that is, Sanders Street or Oh man, fear of heights. Yeah, I, I feel it. How about this one? Fear of the dark. A lot of people still struggle with that, even in their later years. Fear of intimacy. The quote on the screen says, my friends tell me I have an intimacy problem, but they don't really know me. Yeah. How about this one? Fear of death. Fear of failure. (laughs) Epically. Fear of rejection. How about the fear of spiders? Anyone? 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 I saw a number of lists that didn't have spiders. They had snakes. Yeah, yeah. I think they kind of go together: spiders, snakes. And then uh, the last one on the list was the fear of commitment. Here we go. Now, some of you have sweaty palms right now. Just the idea of, of, of heights or, or spiders or commitment. Uh, some of you uh, would ha- would just be struck dead if I were to suddenly ask you to come up and say something up front right (laughs) you know they have a saying on the list there's always on the list public speaking and death right they're they're always on the lists, and and it's led a a number of people to notice that at any given funeral there's more people who'd rather be the guy in the casket than the guy given the eulogy right (laughs) on a fear basis at least Fear can be crippling for us. It can cause us to work harder, to to go more. It can can cause us to hide away, to even give up on the things we really want. Like we we, we wish we could have that relationship or we wish we could do that thing or we, we wish we could embrace that challenge ahead of us. But fear can shut us down. Fear can debilitate us. Fear can make us sick and angry and even give us ulcers. Fear can cause us to pull back when we should be leaning in, to quit when we should push harder to walk away when we should look up it can destroy relationships it can dismantle opportunities fear can stop us from experiencing all that God has for us so what's the solution what's the antidote to our fear of the future what's the antidote to our fear of failure or our our fear of total irrelevance When you turn 40, you start thinking about that, right? Which I did, actually, last year. 41, it's just getting worse. Fear of total irrelevance. Fear of judgment. Fear of loneliness. What's the solution? What's the antidote to our fear? Well, the question to that answer, the antidote itself, is found in today's Revelation passage. Now, that might be surprising to some of you, because... Depending on what you heard growing up, depending on, on, on how you've understood things, Revelation, the book of Revelation, the one we're going through this year, may have actually been a source of fear for you, not comfort. This might have been part of your problems. You know what? I speak as one who has experience. Because I'm telling you that the book of Revelation, here we are preaching through it this year, the book of Revelation was a source of tremendous anxiety for me in my teenage years. I started biting my nails because of the book of Revelation. Yeah, you can laugh, it's okay. But it was serious business. I still struggle with biting my nails, but it's not because of Revelation anymore. It's just a bad habit. Revelation caused me tremendous anxiety as a teenager uh, because of how I had understood it and what I was told about it. And so isn't it ironic or strange this morning that I would suggest to you that the antidote to fear is actually found in this incredible Revelation. Well today, that's what we're gonna receive. From Revelation, we're gonna receive the antidote to our fears, the fears that cripple us, the fears that compromise us, the fears that shut us down. Are you ready for that? Ready for the antidote? Let's go through Revelation chapter 1, 9 through 20. It's on your inserts, there's bulletin, or there's uh, Bibles in the front of your benches, and uh, maybe, maybe you brought one you can borrow off a neighbor. Here it goes. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, John had a reason to be afraid. It's about the mid-90s, probably 96 A.D. John himself is in his mid-80s. And now I know that some of you have dreamed of your spending, your retirement years on your own personal island. John is on an island, but it's no holiday resort. It's a penal colony. John is in jail. John has been sent by the Roman authorities to bleach out on the rocks, He's chipping away at a quarry in his mid-80s. Why? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's alone. He's ignored. He's been shoved aside by the greatest empire in history. Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus means, what it means, when you dig into it, is that John has refused to worship the emperor Domitian, who demanded worship. There were temples in his honor. And you had to worship the emperor. The emperor cult was very strong in this area of the world. And people were told, you must worship the emperor. And John refused that. He refused to declare publicly that the emperor Domitian was Lord and God. Which is what you had to say, that he was Lord and God. And he led and he taught the Christians in his care and in his churches to do the same. You know, honor the emperor? Absolutely. Pray for the emperor? We do it every day. Pay taxes to Caesar? Yes, we'll do that too. But worship him? Not on your life. And not on mine either. John's refusal to worship the emperor was an act of fearless faith, but it was also an act of treason. But rather than make a martyr out of a well-known Christian leader, which John was at this point, they condemned John to obscurity on the island of Patmos. But little did the Romans know when they did this, that it would be on Patmos that Jesus, the true Lord and God of the world, would reveal himself as the king, as the conqueror of Rome herself, declaring his victory and Rome's eventual destruction. That's what happened on Patmos. Well, verse 10, On the Lord's day, John said, I was in the Spirit. And this is so important because, you know, it wasn't, and in the Greek it it shows even more clearly because they could look very similar. It wasn't just that John, he wasn't just on Patmos. He was also in the Spirit. It makes all the difference. John knew that the greatest unseen reality on his rock pile, in that quarry, in that forgotten You know, you could say, God-forsaken island. It wasn't God-forsaken, but that's how it was experienced and seen. That the greatest reality there, unseen, was Jesus himself. And knowing that, John worshipped Jesus, yes, on that rock pile. Yes, on Patmos. Yes, in that difficult situation. But more importantly, on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, on the day that Christians gathered to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and to remember His promise that His resurrection made their resurrection guaranteed. They would remember and celebrate that they too would be raised to life in the end. So it was on the Lord's Day. I was in the Spirit, John said, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. This loud trumpet voice is a, is a wake-up call. Trumpets resound throughout the history of God's people, calling them to worship, but also calling them to battle. Trumpets called God's people to re- come and receive and also to go out. Uh, trumpets called God's people to attend to Yahweh, their God, and to receive His word. And like the trumpets which sounded on the day that the children of Israel received God's law at the foot of Mount Sinai, this voice, like a trumpet, issued a command to John. He was to give God's word to to God's people, commissioning him to write God's word to these seven Asian churches. Well, this trumpet voice is behind John. And so verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. I love that phrase. How do you see a voice? He turned to see the voice. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his, his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held, this, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was shining like the sun. Like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. What a vision. When John turns to see the voice, he receives an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. On this rock pile, the curtain is pulled back and this opening vision of Jesus sets the stage for the whole rest of the revelation that's coming. Everything else that comes flows out of this opening vision of Jesus Christ. But you'll notice that this vision, it's very interesting, when John turns to see the voice, it doesn't immediately start with Jesus. Instead, it begins with his location. When John turns to see the voice, he first sees seven golden lampstands. These are not seven uh, separate lampstands, kind of artfully placed around the room. They're the seven-branched menorah of the ancient temple. And at the end of this passage, we're told that these seven golden lampstands represent the seven churches that John is going to write to. But for now, he sees seven golden lampstands. And it's right in the middle of these lampstands he then sees the voice. Jesus himself. Jesus is described as someone like a son of man. And it's connecting us directly to that vision that Jody read for us out of Daniel 7. This vision of the coming of the one like the son of man. This is very deliberate on the part of, of Jesus. Very deliberate on the part of John. And it's because they want us to see the connection between this vision and this vision we have already received in Daniel 7 of the son of, the man, son of man in the ancient of days so what about this one like the Son of Man? Well, now the, the focus shifts from his location to what he's wearing. He's dressed in official priestly robes, complete with the golden sash of the high priest around his chest. The curtain pulls back. You get it. The, the apocalypse begins to happen. The curtain pulls back, and the first thing we see is Jesus, the great high priest, standing in the center right in the middle of the church. It's an incredible way to start the apocalypse. We could literally camp here all morning. This idea that the great high priest Jesus is right there in the middle of the church. Because these seven churches, we're going to find out in detail over the next few months, are a mess. They're, they're a mess as churches. Some are holding on for dear life, barely. Others are compromised. They're wishy-washy. They're diluted. Each one is under extreme pressure and they're being threatened both from within and from without. And where do we see Jesus, the high priest? Is he standing, because they're such a mess, is he standing on the outside with his arms folded, condemning them from a distance? Is that where he is? Is he, is he, is he hovered over top of them, ready to stomp all over them? Where is Jesus in this? He is right in the center. Right in the middle of the mess. Right in the, right in the very center of these fearful, compromised, suffering, struggling, some, some of them deceived, others faithful. He's right in the middle of the church. As the great high priest, he stands as their mediator, representing God to us, but also representing us to God and offering on our behalf the right prayer, the right sacrifice, the right obedience, but also turning around and delivering to us God's word, setting us straight, offering correction, rebuke, getting us back on the right track. It's right from the middle of the mess of the church that Jesus speaks. The church might be a mess. We... It might be a mess. But I take tremendous courage from the fact that Jesus is right in the middle of the mess. Whew. But I'll move on. It's at this point that John tells us what Jesus looks like, what he actually looks like. He turns to see the voice, first talks about where he is, then he talks about what he's wearing. And now he begins to give us vivid details of what he looks like. And he does it in a really unique way. A way that's designed to give us both an overall picture of Jesus, so we really see him for who he is, but it's also designed structurally to help us see something in particular. This collage of images used by Jesus is arranged using a literary technique that's called a chiasm. And... We don't need to worry too much about this, but if you think of a chiasm, just think of Canadian geese in formation across the sky. What do they make crossing the sky? A beautiful V. That's all chiasm is. We aren't trained to see chiasms in our day because when we give a list of things, kind of like that list of fears I gave at the start, when we give a list of things, we emphasize what in a series? If we want to emphasize something in a series, we either emphasize the first thing or... The last thing, right? That's how we emphasize things in series, and so we're we're kind of made to see things like that. But in the ancient world, the writers would use a technique called a chiasm, and what they would do is they would they would arrange things so that it came down to a pivot point, down to a center point, and then turn back the other direction, and oftentimes very obvious because they'll link the first one and the last one. They'll link the second one and the second last one and how many there are in a series. And they want us to see the climax is at the center of the chiasm. It's, it's at the very center. And if you look to the center, in line of the whole, but if you look to the center, you'll be able to see the point that they're trying to make. Well, this should become clearer as we get into this, this vision of Jesus and how it's arranged. And as we do, as each one of these items are mentioned about who Jesus is, and as we center in on the middle... This curtain, the curtain of revelation, is pulled further and further back. And even as this image of Jesus is revealed, he begins to chase out our fear. He begins to deal with the fears that cripple us and compromise us. So let's get into this vision. First of all, we're drawn to see the hair of Jesus. And, you know, when you picture Jesus, he does not have white hair, does he? No, he does not. It's usually kind of slightly golden, darker locks, right? Flowing. This is how you image Jesus. I I know it. So what's the deal with this? Hair, white like wool. Hair, white as snow. Well, remember, we talked about this last week. It's one of the things that makes reading Revelation challenging. Is that John and Jesus, the writer, however you want to put this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will always go back to the Old Testament and draw imagery, draw symbolism, draw numbers, draw stories from the Old Testament. Feel will draw it into the story. And so we always got to look back. Well, this hair like wool, white like wool, comes directly out of Daniel 7, which Jody read for us. In that vision, and this is so important, it's the Ancient of Days. God the Father himself, who's described as having hair white like wool. What in the world is... all Now, that's an image that is often popularized in pop culture, right? An image of God the Father with the long flowing white hair, the big beard too, right? I'm not saying that's an accurate picture of God either, but at least the white hair makes more sense when we're talking about God the Father, right? Well, what's this revealing? Right at the very start, the curtain is pulled back and we see that Jesus, oh, he looks just like his Father, He looks just like God. Right at the very start of this vision, we see Jesus with white hair pointing to his divinity, that we are dealing with God here. Right at the very start, depicting his absolute holiness and purity. As the curtain is pulled back, Jesus is revealed as the holy God. Next, we come to his eyes. We're going to go down the chiasm, and I've arranged it on the screen so we can follow along. We're told his eyes are like a blazing fire. And John, again, he's going to do this. He reaches back again for another vision passage, this time in Daniel chapter 10, where the blazing eyes represent the all-seeing, penetrating eyes of God's wisdom. That God never misses anything. That he knows you. He knows what's going on in the world. He knows what's happening in the human heart. He knows what's happening in the deepest, darkest recesses of the world. He knows Blazing eyes show that Jesus knows, that he understands, that he doesn't miss a thing. And let me tell you, for a group of churches, a tiny little cluster of Christians in some of these cities scattered across Asia, for you and I here today, who often can feel ground down and tiny under the crushing pressure of whatever you're going through. For them, under the crushing pressure of the superpower of the world, to know that Jesus has eyes blazing like a fire, that he knows exactly what you're going through, that he knows precisely the kind of pressure you're under, is of huge encouragement. Because that's often when we feel the most alone. Jesus doesn't miss a thing. He's revealed here as immensely wise. Well, the feet are next. We slide right from the blazing eyes right down to his feet the burnished bronze of his feet. And again, it draws... Book of John, uh, the book of Revelation really loves the book of Daniel. So it draws again on another Daniel passage. In contrast to the weak legs of this great, enormous statue that shows up in an early dream in Daniel that had weak legs and, and it was, it was it's sort of the fault line and things that were wrong in, in, this, in this big, immense-looking, strong kingdom. Jesus instead is depicted here as being absolutely sturdy, immovable, unable to be shattered or tarnished or thrown to the side. But he is strong and he's revealed as immensely strong. And then we come from hair, eyes, feet to the voice. The voice is different. We're describing kind of body parts. And now we come to the voice which is like the sound of rushing waters drawing from a bunch of visions in Ezekiel where it's the voice of the Lord God Almighty and it's the glory of the Lord that's depicted as having to sound like rushing water, so the roar of a waterfall. Again, making a direct connection to the divinity of Jesus. Now, we're going to come back to the voice because this is the center of the chiasm. This is the point that we are meant to focus in on. We'll come back to it. Next, we go to the right hand which holds seven stars. Imagine it. The right hand of Jesus holding seven stars. Now, this is the first time we're told in this little vision, uh, not of something that's like, you know, hair like, wool or, or uh, eyes like blazing fire. We're told that he's holding something. It's kind of different. And strangely, very strangely, in light of everything we're going to experience in Revelation, what you've even seen so far, it has very little Old Testament background. This image doesn't seem to be an image that John is reaching backward. Instead, he seems to be reaching into his culture and acknowledging that in the the ancient days, and actually continue for many, many hundreds and hundreds of years, people believed that the planets, particularly the seven planets, the seven stars of their, their world, were what influenced everyone. That your life and my life, depending on whether you were born under a certain planet or influence or under a certain star... Your life would be kind of charted based on that. Your, your destiny was written in the stars, right? Sounds so poetic, but it was actually crushing. Because, man, if you were born in the wrong star, too bad for you, right? And so people lived the life struggling under that, or under this belief that that's where the influence, this is how world events were shaped. This is how lives and families and destinies were shaped by these seven planets, these seven stars, and they would worship them, and they would, they would try to figure out how to manipulate it, or they would write people off because of it. And it seems like what's happening here is that John has co-opted that. He's just grabbed it from this pagan mythology and imagery, And he's given it a Christian point of reference. Yes, Jesus holds seven stars. Which is a way of saying, you think stars influence the world? Man, Jesus just juggles with those puppies. They're in his right hand. You're dealing with the one here, this Jesus. The curtain's being pulled back on the one who truly influences the world. Who truly has a say in the way things are going. Who truly holds your destiny. Isn't that beautiful? And so he pulls these seven stars. You find out, as a little later on, that these seven stars, oh, that the angels of the seven churches. And, 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 and these seven churches are what Jesus is, is, is writing to. And we find out that Jesus is revealed here as the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord of the universe. But here, and this can be frightening for us, I, res- I respect that. It's weird. But here's essentially what's being said here. Jesus is saying, Yes, I'm the Lord of heaven and earth. And guess how I influence the destiny of men and women. Guess how I shape world events. I do it through my people. I'm the Lord of heaven and earth. And the way that I am bringing my world to its intended goal is through what we will find out in the book of Revelation, through the sacrificial and suffering witness of the Lamb and His followers. This is Wow, powerful stuff. And so Jesus, the curtain is pulled back on the Lord of heaven and earth who holds the seven stars in his hand. We will hear more about this. Let's keep going. The mouth. From the right hand, we go to the mouth, which is described as having a double-edged sword, kind of like a short Roman sword coming out of it. There's multiple Old Testament passages behind this image. And it's an image that's going to be drawn in again in Revelation, particularly when it describes the potential of judgment or judgment itself coming. It it comes up again in, in Revelation. And here's what it's saying. Listen up, folks. The Jesus who has shown up, the Jesus who the curtain has been pulled back on, who stands in the center of the church and is delivering the word, comes. And he needs to be heard because he is the rightful judge and he's the righteous judge. And when he judges, things happen. Things change. Finally, we come to his face, shining like the sun in all its brilliance. This might have an Old Testament reference to the, the ideal warrior of Israel, but I think it most clearly anticipates the beautiful vision at the end of Revelation where we're told, in this New Jerusalem descends, and there's a new heavens, a new earth, a new creation, we're told that the sun, we no longer need the light of the sun. It doesn't say the sun is gone. It just says we no longer need the light of the sun. Why? Because the Lamb, who is Jesus, is plenty enough light for everybody. The Lamb is its light. Jesus is revealed as the true light of the world. What an apocalypse. You know, where do you go with this? Each one of these aspects, the hair, the the eyes, the feet, the voice, the right hand, the mouth, face, they all pull back the curtain revealing who Jesus is and how his presence in the world changes everything. The chiasm pairs things together, and I can't get into all the details of that, but taking this whole apocalyptic vision of Jesus, standing there with all the strength and power that he has, all the wisdom and the understanding, our loving, great high priest who has given himself in our place, this vision, friends, if we will see it, will drive out any crippling fear that you have knowing that this Jesus is the one who stands not only in the middle of the church, but right in the middle of your family, right in the middle of your mess, or in the middle of your depression, right in the middle of your health crisis, right in the middle of your terrible job, that this is the Jesus who is the greatest unseen reality that's present in your life. Friends, that changes everything. It drives out fear. It drives out fear one by one as we've come to see Jesus for who He is and who He's shown up. He wants us to see Him. Taking it all together. But this vision is arranged, as I've already said, in a way that's meant to draw our attention in particular right to the center. You know, John, how it's written is he turns to see the voice. And I believe that this is written in such a way that we are meant to turn and see the voice. We are meant to somehow hear in particular from this person, this one like the Son of Man, this great high priest, as he declares himself to us so that we can see him for who he truly is. John wants us, and Jesus wants us to see the voice of the Son of Man. Well, what does this voice say? How do we see it? That's where we go next. When I saw him, All the things we just described, John says in verse 17, I fell at his feet as though dead. No kidding. I would be a slobbering fool on the ground, and you would too. But this act of falling down, falling down dead, falling down to worship, that's the standard response you see whenever God shows up. If you look back to the Old Testament, if you look at, even when, when angels showed up to deliver a message from God, people fall down and people are very afraid, usually. This is what happens. But then John, down at the feet of Jesus, get this, just think of this. John is down like a dead man. What does he feel? He feels something on his shoulder. Something strong. Something warm. Something that grips him. The right hand of Jesus. The hand that holds the seven stars. He, Jesus, placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look. I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are The seven churches, it's about as clear of an interpretation of symbolism as you will ever get from anyone in the Bible, let alone Revelation. So you want to hang your hat on that one. When the voice speaks, he uses the very same descriptors that were used, Jody read them out of Isaiah, to describe the Lord God Almighty. Because it's true of Jesus, because he's God he says, I am the first and the last, the living one. And then he speaks of his death and resurrection. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. It's this voice that we need to turn and see. It's this voice that we need to obey. And we, we hear this voice, we find that we meet someone who's holding the very keys. What an incredible image. The very keys of death and Hades. Hell personified. He's got the keys. Isn't that incredible? You see what's going on here? Any fear of suffering that you have, any fear of death that we carry, any fear of life or of the future, how can it stand before this Jesus? It doesn't have a leg to stand on. Does fear have any place where we receive this vision of Jesus who holds the very keys to death and Hades? I mean, seriously, what could happen to you? Jesus is the feet of death. He can unlock the door, people. He's come through. There was an old back creature. I can't mimic him because I'm not black. I'm not old. But he talked about how the demon hordes, When they had to report back to Satan that Jesus had gotten out of his cell, right? Because they have been partying because Jesus was in the grave, right? And the demon comes back to report to Satan and Satan is very upset. But then he has to admit the real truth. Not only did He escape, He took the keys with Him. Isn't that great? And there's this picture. (laughs) He's got the keys! Right? He's got the keys! The whole thing's over! Our control is gone! The fear we've been conquering people with, the fear we've been ruling the world with, we don't have it anymore because He got away and he took the keys. Wow! There's no fear left, people. He's got the keys. This is crazy. You guys are looking at me like I've lost it, but this is important stuff. And when we come to this, We come to the only true and effective antidote to fear. The solution to the the, the fear that so often cripples you and compromises you. That drives your life. That influences your behavior. That destroys your relationship. The fear that is sabotaging your life. We come here to the antidote that Jesus himself reaches over with the right hand of destiny. The right hand that holds the universe. That this right hand reaches over, places it on our shoulder and says, do not be afraid. Look. Don't be afraid. Look. Look at who I am. Don't be afraid. See me as I've been revealed. Don't be afraid. Look at what I've done. Look at what I'm holding. Don't be afraid. Look. This is the antidote to any fear. These are The two great commands of the book of Revelation. They're going to come up again and again and again. Two commands. Don't be afraid and look. Now the look is going to be hidden sometimes in translation. I'll try to point it out when we see it. But, over 25 times in the book of Revelation we are told to look. Don't be afraid. Look. And here's the thing. How do we keep The command to not be afraid. That's the big question, right? Because the fear is what cripples us. The fear that you walk around with every day. Fear of the future. Fear that your family's going to break down. Fear of another health crisis. Fear of your kids going off the tracks. Whatever fear you carry. It can be so crippling, we don't even know what to do. How do we obey the command to not be afraid? We obey the command to not be afraid by obeying the second command to look. If we will keep the second command to look The first command of not being afraid will take care of itself. We obey the second by doing the first. When we're afraid, when you and I are afraid, it's because we've forgotten to look. Or perhaps, more accurately, we could say, it's because we've stopped looking at Jesus. What we did instead is we started looking around us. We started looking at our circumstance. We started looking at our failures. We, we started seeing the stress and the pressure. We started, we started obsessing about the economy or where the culture's going and fear begins to set in. Fear begins to take over. Fear starts to cripple us and compromise us and we start making decisions we know we shouldn't make. We start doing things we know we shouldn't do. We start heading off in directions and and slotting priorities in our life that are more out of fear and insecurity than Jesus and what he wants. Because we've forgotten to look at Jesus. We've started to look at other things. And it's at this very moment when fear threatens to overwhelm us. When it threatens to overcome us, we are to look. Behold. To let Jesus pull the curtain back and really see the voice. Really look. And by looking at Him, we are no longer afraid. So let me ask you, what are you afraid of truly? What are you afraid of? What have you been looking at? What's been filling your vision? What's been influencing your actions? What's been determining your direction in life? For the seven churches in Asia who are going to be receiving this incredible revelation, they have plenty to be afraid of, folks. The superpower of the world, this beastly Roman Empire, has set itself against Jesus and against his followers. And these Christians were being crushed under the pressure of her awful power. Fear threatened to overwhelm these tiny churches, these tiny little clusters of Christians, leading some of them to founder, to compromise. Others were still continuing to look at Jesus and follow faithfully, but man, they were having a tough time. This apocalypse of Jesus, this whole entire letter was given to them so they could look and not be afraid. So they could see and see Jesus who will transform their fear into a fearless faith. And that's why it's been given to us. So what are you afraid of? What fears grip you? Are you afraid that by trusting in Jesus, you'll lose status in life, in your job, in your family? Are you afraid of what's coming in the future? Does the future scare you? Does the upcoming election give you cause for fear? Are you afraid of being lonely, or judged, or ignored? Are you afraid that by identifying with Jesus publicly, it's going to cause you some trouble at school? Are you afraid of that? Or maybe some trouble at work? Are you afraid of just being irrelevant? Of not mattering at all? Are you afraid of growing old? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of financial sacrifice? Are you afraid that if you really said yes to Jesus, you aren't sure life would be comfortable anymore? What are you afraid of? Fear can cripple us. And what we need is an apocalypse of Jesus. Letting Him pull back the curtain to show us who He is. That He is the Holy God. That He is immensely wise. That He's immensely strong. That He's absolutely pure. And that He's the loving High Priest who is standing right in the middle of our church. Right in the middle of your life. Right in the middle of your mess. Standing strong. And he's pulling back the curtain. He's saying, take a look at me. Only an apocalyptic vision of Jesus can change our fearful faithlessness into faithful fearlessness. It's the only thing that will do it. We need an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid. Look. Don't be afraid. Look. At communion which is where we're going this morning, we hear the same invitation to come with our fear, to come with our struggles, to come with whatever mess is in our life, and to hear Jesus saying to us, don't be afraid. Look. Don't be afraid. Look. And as we come today to recognize that He is here among us, the people who will be serving your communion today As they serve you, do you realize Jesus himself is serving you? Because he is here as our great high priest. He is the one that hosts this table. And as we come to the table today, we receive from his hand, dare I say it, from the hand that holds the very stars, this bread and this juice. And he's calling us as we come to look. To let the curtain be pulled back so that we can see Jesus and not be afraid. So what are you afraid of? Jesus stands here today. Don't be afraid. Look. Jesus is here today and he wants to say something to you. He wants you to see something today. Don't be afraid. Look. Jesus offers his life to us. Don't be afraid. Look. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look. That is our invitation to communion today. I want to invite those who are serving to come. I'm going to offer them bread and juice. And they in turn will offer it to us. And all of us will receive from each other and from the hand of Jesus, His body and His blood.